Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in this week for Rebecca Shear, and today we'll bring you stories about turning points, stories about those moments in our careers, in our relationships, and in our neighborhoods when we reach a critical juncture and maybe take a leap into the unknown. Over the next hour, we'll meet two guys who took that leap right off the corporate ladder and opened their own beer garden here in D.C., We'll also talk with a Montgomery County man who has struggled for years with paranoid schizophrenia and just moved into his own apartment for the first time in years. But first, we begin our show with a turning point that happens every single night in the waters of the Chesapeake Bay and its tributaries. It has to do with one of the bay's most critical and imperiled residents, oysters. The situation for oysters looks bleak by any measure. One estimate from the Chesapeake Biological Laboratory at the University of Maryland puts the oyster population at just 0.3 percent of historical levels, mostly thanks to overharvesting. But for many years, biologists and environmental policymakers have also voiced concern about declining oxygen levels in the bay, a phenomenon caused in part by the demise of underwater plants such as bay grasses. Now, in deep water, oxygen levels change very slowly. But in coastal nutrient-rich waters, the balance of oxygen is actually fluctuating all the time along a day-night cycle. Some of the latest research on how water quality in the bay is affecting this cycle and how those changes are affecting oysters happens in a lab at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center, better known as CERC, in Edgewater, Maryland. The Reed Education Center on the 2,600-acre CERC campus sits on the Road River, a tributary of the Chesapeake. And the waters of the road are constantly pumped in and out of the lab here, making this what's called, logically, a wet lab. For our room itself, we're going through about 20 liters of water a minute through, through the lab, and that's just trying to pump as much river water from the river through the room as we can to, to feed the oysters. That is Andrew Keppel, a graduate student here at Cirque. And the room he's talking about isn't just any room. It's the room of doom. How excited were you when we came up with the acronym? Pretty excited, yeah. It's, it's a good one. So as you may have gathered by now, the Room of Doom, as christened by Keppel and his fellow researcher Rebecca Burrell, has nothing to do with the apocalypse, unless perhaps you're an oyster. So Doom came out of dissolved oxygen, oyster mortality, and it's one of those things where it's a cool name that we then sort of made work, and we've stuck with it even though we've sort of moved on to growth and disease and other uh, aspects. The lab is dominated by 30 oyster aquarium tanks, each filled with river water and different mixes of dissolved oxygen and nitrogen, along with different levels of plankton to feed the oysters. Everything is monitored by a customized computer program, and researchers know right away if oxygen levels or other levels are off thanks to an appropriately sinister alarm. The Room of Doom can even send researchers email and text messages if something goes wrong in the middle of the night. So the Room of Doom is even scarier than I thought. It's alive. It's, <laughs> it's definitely alive. Though it may seem like the room itself is running the show, everything here happens under the watchful eye of Dr. Denise Breitberg, an ecologist who focuses on how we humans influence coastal systems. She says a main goal of this experiment is finding out what makes oysters more susceptible to dermo. That's a disease that has ravaged oysters throughout the bay. It's a single-celled parasite. 
that the oysters are exposed to as they're filtering water for food and, and to get oxygen, essentially, also. And, you know, essentially over time, the oyster cells are displaced by these, you know, ever-increasing numbers of parasite cells, and it eventually kills them. Breitberg and her team have shown that severe low oxygen, or hypoxia, hampers oysters' ability to fight the parasitic infection that causes dermo. In fact, their work shows that hypoxia can result in two to three times as many oysters becoming infected than in waters with normal oxygen levels. And in shallow coastal waters, oxygen levels drop drastically on a nightly basis. During the day, underwater plants and plankton are photosynthesizing, taking in carbon dioxide and putting more oxygen into the water. At night, when it's dark, they're only respiring, they're not photosynthesizing. So what they're doing is they're using that oxygen and they're putting carbon dioxide into the water. Excess carbon dioxide also raises the water's pH, or acidity. And Breitberg's team has recently started monitoring that variable as well. All of these fluctuations, she says, are exacerbated by the nitrogen and carbon dioxide humans are adding to the mix with polluted runoff and air pollution. This pollution helps create the bay's dead zones, places with chronically low oxygen levels and fewer living things. It's why Breitberg says the future of oysters in the bay is likely to look very different from the past, even if her research points to methods for avoiding their complete disappearance from bay waters. Well, wild oysters as the source of food may be a thing of the past. However, wild oysters for their role in the ecosystem is something that I think has a lot of promise. And Breitberg says in a healthy bay, oysters would play a starring role. As oysters settle on top of one another, they can form reefs that can act as home to fish and other aquatic critters. And as filter feeders, they also help keep water clean. But of course, there's a limit to how much they can do by themselves. And once waters get too dirty or hypoxic, oysters can't exactly swim away. Next, Breitberg and her team plan to find out if shallow water fish, which unlike oysters can swim to more hospitable waters, fare any better when facing similar conditions. You can learn more about the Room of Doom and see a video of the work that happens there on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll turn now from oysters to vegetables. Plenty of parents can attest that getting young kids to switch up their diets and choose leafy greens over french fries and pizza can be a real uphill battle. But researchers here in the district are trying the seemingly impossible, getting children to eat the veggies served up in school cafeterias all over the city. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza is here now with the story. Hey there, Kavitha. Hi, Jonathan. So I'm guessing a lot of vegetables are thrown in the trash at cafeterias every single day. This seems like a pretty big challenge for schools to take on. Definitely. I was at Aiton Elementary School in Northeast D.C. recently, and I visited around lunchtime, Jonathan, and found many, many children throwing out their untouched vegetables. This is known as plate waste. 
In 2010, the U.S. Department of Agriculture estimated that every year, 133 billion pounds of food is wasted or spoiled before it can be eaten. It's one of the reasons a few decades ago the USDA allowed schools to stop the serve method, where food is already placed on a tray, and go with an offer method, where you have a choice of what you want to eat. Is that actually considered a better option for kids? Well, it depends. I spoke to Professor Stacy Snelling, the Associate Dean and Professor in the School of Education, Teaching, and Health at American University. And, and just a quick programming note, American University is the license owner for WAMU 88.5. Right. And so Snelling says if children get to decide what they eat, more often than not, they won't even try something new. In the serve model, we see more waste. In the offer model, we see less consumption. And we haven't found the balance yet. So she teamed up with D.C. Central Kitchen to do some vegetable taste tests. Students at two DCPS schools get to try a seasonal vegetable prepared in three different ways. Then they vote on which one they like best, and it goes on the school menu. So it sounds a little like Top Chef DCPS, and I understand you actually got to witness this process. I imagine some of these children could be pretty tough judges. Well, let's take a listen to their reactions. They had to choose their favorites from among parmesan-crusted zucchini, roasted zucchini, and zucchini stewed with tomatoes. Some boys, like Delonte Stringfellow, ran to the trash can after tasting the zucchini stewed with tomatoes. One, two, three. Okay, so what's your favorite? You don't like that one, okay. Tell me what you just did. I spit it out. Why? It was nasty and it was too sour. So I actually like zucchini. What did everyone say when this kid spat it out? Katie Nash, the program manager and nutritionist with D.C. Central Kitchen, says she just wants students to try different vegetables. None of the kids I spoke with at Aiton Elementary had tasted zucchini before. And I've met children who, for example, will call cauliflower white broccoli. But not all the children have the same reactions as Delonte. Here are some students, Kenaya Chaplin and Jada Champ, with their reactions to the Parmesan-crusted zucchini and roasted zucchini options. It's the bomb! It's the bomb? Yes. Tell me why. Because it got cheese, it got flavor, it tastes like Papa John's. I like the second one because it's roasted and it tastes very good. Have you tasted zucchini before? No. Nash says, for the record, that the Parmesan zucchini had very little cheese and it was baked, not fried. But in general, these sorts of positive reactions make her day. I had one student recently, she said, I have one word, three syllables, amazing. I said, that's great. That's like the best thing I could ever hear. And it's really, really encouraging. It makes it worth it. So now that this taste test is done, what happens next? Well, once the dish is on the school menu, then using an iPhone app, researchers measure whether students actually eat that vegetable. And those results are compared to students in schools that don't take part in the taste test. And the results from last year are pretty interesting. In D.C., we've done collard greens, sweet potatoes, broccoli, black beans, and spinach. And in all of those cases, we have shown significant changes between baseline, which is when the children have it placed on their trays, and then we intervene with a taste test and voting. And in every case, with all five vegetables, there has been a significant change in the amount of vegetables consumed, reducing the plate waste. 
Broccoli was the most dramatic. It went from approximately 12% up into the 40% range, which means that almost half of the broccoli being served is being consumed. So I'm curious, which of those three zucchini options won the taste test that you watched? Overwhelmingly, with 25 votes, Jonathan, it was the Parmesan zucchini. And it'll be on the school lunch menu at Eton very soon. One last thing to mention, Jonathan, Stacy Snelling, the researcher conducting this study, says it takes about eight tastes before you get used to a certain food. So children often need to be coaxed to try something new and to eat healthy options. This behavioral aspect of food is really interesting. So research has shown that a successful nudge in the right direction can be anything from pre-slicing fruits to giving food different names. So instead of seafood fillet, people are more likely to find succulent Italian seafood fillet an appetizing choice. And now, Kavitha... I am hungry. But thank you for sharing this tasty morsel of a story with us. Next time, bring some samples, please. Definitely. Thanks, Jonathan. You can see a photo of the taste test and find more research on how to get kids to eat more veggies. It's all on our website, metroconnection.org. Partial support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. After the break, a sudsy start to a new career in beer. About two years ago, a year and a half ago, we found ourselves both out of jobs and um, kind of decided, you know what, that's probably the right time to start doing something on our own. That's just ahead as Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in this week for Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. This week's show is all about turning points, those crucial moments when we reach a crossroads or make a breakthrough, and something, something big, changes. In just a bit, we'll talk with two guys who turned job loss into an opportunity to free themselves from the 9-to-5 grind and pursue new careers. First, though, we'll hear from a man whose turning point came recently, after many years of struggles with paranoid schizophrenia. Megan Pauly brings us his story. Stephen has been living with schizophrenia since he was in his teens. He's 36 now, and for years, his story was one of delusions, misdiagnoses, hospitalizations, and brushes with the law. Uh, There's been ups and downs. That's part of the um, context in which things happen, and then there's setbacks and mistakes. Recently, Stephen, who asked that we use only his middle name to protect his privacy, says his story is taking a happier turn. Three weeks ago, he moved into his own apartment in Silver Spring. It's the first time he's living independently in more than a decade. It's tough with the mental health problem. It can be tough, but um, I've tried to reach out to him to help picking me up. Got a nice indoor entrance here. Yeah. And you probably feel pretty safe here, too, right? Yeah. 
Among those helping to pick him up is Sarah Wazodsky. She's a rehabilitation counselor for Cornerstone Montgomery, a nonprofit dedicated to improving the lives of those living with a mental illness. Sarah meets with Stephen once or twice a week to help him with routine chores such as paying utility bills. Stephen either takes the bus to Cornerstone or sometimes Sarah comes to him. I've just been helping him kind of make the transition from living with roommates and housemates to just living on his own. At the moment, Stephen and I are hanging out in Stephen's new apartment and he's showing me his extensive collection of books. It was recommended by a rabbi, the Book of Our Heritage, and uh, then uh, I got Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species, a book on Turkey, uh, some prayer books. Stephen has achieved a level of success that he once thought impossible. He says reading and studying have helped him through some of the lowest points in his struggles with schizophrenia. He graduated with an Associate of Arts degree from Montgomery College in 2012. I love to learn. I, love it. I just do it all the time. It keeps me going. It's my food, kind of. <laughs> but it hasn't always been an easy road for Stephen. He says one of the hardest things for him to accept was that his delusions, including his belief that passing cars were shocking him with electricity, weren't real. Yeah, my, my disease can really... Um, be debilitating. After a brush with the law several years ago, Stephen spent well over a year in a state mental hospital. Then he entered Adrian House, an inpatient 24-hour residential care unit that's part of Cornerstone Montgomery. I, um, I had some real bad problems come up, and I got, I had to, it was like a probation period of five years where I had to take my medications, see my doctors, I couldn't even mess up once, I don't think. Maybe once, not much more than that. Nicole Grainer has worked for Cornerstone Montgomery for more than a decade and has gotten to watch Stephen grow on his journey to recovery. She's sitting in her office chatting with him, something they do from time to time when he comes to Cornerstone for appointments. I know. I know. It's awesome. It's been a long time. It has. I I was telling Megan how you and I had this conversation now 13 years ago when we first met, that your goal was to be where you are right now. Yeah. And you did it. Nicole says she's also proud to see Stephen taking on the role of mental health advocate. He recently shared his story and testimony at a Montgomery County Council meeting. I can't begin to tell you the impact that working toward the goal of having my own apartment has had on my mental health and well-being. I've not been hospitalized since 2009, and I've been working for just over a year. Stephen says he'll keep sharing his story as well as working to fight the stigma surrounding mental illness. He doesn't want his mental disorder to define him, and he continues to set goals for the future. I want to be grounded in reality. It sounds like you are. Thanks, yeah. Well, good doctors. and the one. The, my next big goal is to try to find some kind of exercise three times, three to four times a week. Stephen's ambitions extend far beyond exercising. His long-term plans include obtaining his Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy and someday starting a family. He's also even working on his own autobiography. This is Megan Polly.
Our next story in today's Turning Points show is about the twists and turns we sometimes take in our careers. Dimitri Jakaldin and Ilya Alter both went to business school, earned MBAs, and had good jobs until one day those jobs were gone. Neither wanted to go back to work for someone else, so they decided to open their very own German-style beer garden here in D.C. John Hines brings us their story. Dacha is the Russian word for a country house with a garden, but the Dacha beer garden is in the heart of the city, at the corner of 7th and Q Streets Northwest in Shaw. There are picnic tables with umbrellas and a three-story mural of Elizabeth Taylor looking down on the beer-swilling crowd below. There are 12 drafts, and you're invited to bring your own picnic. Cheese, hummus, pretzels, whatever. Your dog's invited to the party, too, if you have one. And it's all outside. That's Ilya Alter and Dmitry Chakaldin, the owners of Dacha. They've opened up their beer garden early one day to talk with me about their pasts and their new careers. Both men came to D.C. and their German beer garden by way of Russia. Chakaldin says he was born in the Ural Mountains. In the city of Perm, P-E-R-M. Alter was born and raised in Russia and later moved to Baltimore with his parents. Uh, I grew up in a city called Khabarovsk, which is in the far east of Russia. And I came to the U.S. Uh, when I was 17 with my parents. My parents immigrated and they brought me and my sister. And they still live in Baltimore. Like so many immigrants before them, Jakaldin and Alter arrived in America and set to work on their studies and then their careers. Here's Alter. Um, I have a degree in finance from University of Maryland, and later I uh, got an MBA from the Johns Hopkins. And I uh, worked for uh, various companies, law firms, uh, in financial planning departments, dealing with budgets and uh, forecasts for about 14 years. Dimitri says he trained as a diplomat and also got an MBA, which helped him land a job as a commodities trader. I'm a graduate of George Washington University, and um, my MBA is from a French school. So they had good educations and good jobs, but by serendipity, or bad luck, they found themselves unemployed. About two years ago, a year and a half ago, we found ourselves both out of jobs and um, kind of decided, you know what, that's probably the right time to to start doing something on our own. And uh, then the idea of uh, beer garden came up, and here we are. Chakaldin says the choice he faced was clear. Get another job working for someone else or strike out on his own. Well, for me, there was a moment. It was actually two moments. One came from Ilya, my, my friend. But the first realization came when I was part of the study group at my corporate job that was tasked with writing an algorithm for a giant computer called artificial intelligence. The algorithm, he says, was designed to replace work done by humans. He knew his own job would soon be gone. It was inevitable. I knew that it would happen. And uh, in my mind, I started changing the direction of where I'm going to be looking. But once I was out of the job, it was Ilya who told me that... um, Yes, it's very nice to find another corporate gig and be comfortable with a paycheck coming in, uh, but you will be in a cycle, and you will not be free. To be free, 
That was their goal. Soon, Chicalton and Alter saw glimmers of that freedom in a vacant lot at 7th and Q Streets Northwest. Without knowing whether a beer garden would work, they signed a 10-year lease. Today, Dacha is a hit. Pilsner-wise, we're going we're gonna to carry Koenig for a little while. Who? Koenig, Pilsner. Okay. That's, uh... On this Thursday evening, Dacha is crowded with 20, 30, and yes, 40-somethings enjoying open-air beer drinking under Liz Taylor's enchanting eyes. Mary Beth Levin is here for the first time. It's a lovely place, as you can hear. It's completely packed. Uh, the atmosphere is very warm, very friendly, very welcoming. People are here in tank tops, they're here in business suits, they're here with their dogs, they're here with their own picnic. All different kinds of people. All different kinds of people who together are making Dacha's owners pretty pleased that they chose the path they did. Every morning I wake up a happier person. It's a beer garden and the fact that uh, we are building something better and we get good response from people and beer by beer we're changing the world for better. Beer by beer, changing the world for the better. Now that's a career goal I can drink to. I'm John Hines. We'll turn now to the world of planes, trains, and automobiles as we bring you our regular transportation segment from A to B. And joining us for that is WAMU transportation reporter Martin DeCaro, who has some news we've been waiting on for years. Hi there, Martin. Thanks for joining us. Well, Jonathan, glad to be here. So that long-awaited news has to do with Metro's Silver Line, the system's first new line since 1991. Now, construction began in March of 2009. Here we are, June 2014. So is the Silver Line finally ready? Well, big expectations for me to deliver here. Almost. It's almost ready. It seems this really has been a soap opera at times. Each week, a new development either bringing us closer or threatening another delay. But on Monday, Metro finally is expected to announce when the Silver Line will open, and it is looking like late July, early August for the first passengers out to Tyson's and Reston. So part of the issue has been all of the problems that contractors have had to fix. Remind us what some of the problems were and how they've gotten fixed. Well, the lead contractor, Bechtel, and its subcontractors were required to fix a host of track signaling and construction issues. Some were more important than others. The list was dozens of items long, a to-do list that was part of an agreement between the airports authority and Metro back in April That agreement was designed to get the project moving, to get it to our summer opening. So Metro's general manager, Richard Sarles, had this to say about the contractor's progress during a conference call earlier this week. We have dates we plan against, and as I said before, that's in fact true of any construction schedule. You have dates you plan against. But when you set a firm date, it's based on the progress you've made up to that point. And now we're getting to the point where if the work is done this week that is scheduled to be done, then my level of confidence will be high enough to establish a firm date. 
So Sarl sounds confident at this point, but we've known for two weeks now that Metro's been eyeing possibly late July for the Silver Line. Jackie Jeter is the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 689. She told WAMU Metro leaders informed the union to have train operators and station managers ready for trial runs on July 20th. We have a July 20th simulation service date. That's what we have. So unless they come to me and tell me uh, we're not ready to go and the service is not going and the pick is canceled, then we're set to go. And when I asked him about it today, he told me that we're still on board. So that's what we're going with. Okay, so it sounds like we're finally ready to move past the drama of completing the project to actually moving commuters through northern Virginia. Remind us, where will the Silver Line stop at this point? Well, there'll be four stops in Tyson's Corner, and moving west, the final station stop will be in Reston at Wheelie Avenue. Not quite all the way to Dulles Airport yet. You'll have to take a bus or shuttle from Reston to Dulles. So, of course, Silver Line supporters have long talked about the idea of how this rail line will transform the region, and especially Tyson's Corner. Can you talk about that? Well, right. You know, Fairfax County envisions a city of 100,000 residents and 200,000 employees in Tyson's uh, within the next 25 years. Okay, it's a sizable number. So how are all these people right. actually supposed to get to and around Tyson's once they get there? Yeah, that's right. The Silver Line is the centerpiece of all this. It's a very good question because traffic Traffic in that area is pretty bad now, and planners certainly don't want everyone driving to the stations to take the train. Now, a lot of people drive or take buses to Tyson's already. 100,000 people work there on any given weekday. So, to answer your question, there will be parking lots at the westernmost and easternmost of the five Silver Line stations. The lot in Reston will be permanent. The lot at McLean Station will be temporary. So you're saying no permanent lots at any of the four Tyson stations. That's right. To connect rail commuters to Tyson's Corner, Metro, Fairfax Connector, and other transit agencies have added several bus routes to drop people off right at those station stops. For those who still need to drive or want to drive, there is Reston and the temporary lot at McLean. So what if I want to just go to the mall at Tyson's Corner, uh, park my car, and hop on the Silver Line from there? I'll let Michael Kaplan, the head of the Tyson's Partnership, answer that question. This is not commuter parking. This is shopper parking. Each property owner who has a parking lot is making their own plans about how they're going to manage the commuter parking. And I have a feeling that a lot of plans are still in development because no one really knows what the demand on the parking will be. So, Mr. Wilson, the malls are going to be looking out for you and commuters who may want to try to nab free parking. Kaplan says the buses will drop you off right at the station, so it's more convenient than parking at a mall and walking to the Silver Line. All right. So... Let's move from the Silver Line to a simpler way of getting around. Of course, by foot is what I'm talking about. The lack of pedestrian safety on some D.C. roads seems to be gaining a lot of attention. Lately, you visited one intersection in the Capitol Hill neighborhood. What brought you there? I'll tell you in a moment. I first want to briefly address this issue. You're right. Pedestrian and bicycling safety is receiving more attention lately because so many D.C. residents are getting around without cars now. Makes sense. D.C. has a lot of car-free households. That's right. right. 40% are car-free, according to the census. So I visited Maryland Avenue Northeast at the intersection of 7th and D Streets. A librarian had been run over by a taxi cab. She was badly injured, but will survive. And when I looked into the story, residents start telling me how dangerous that quarter has been for years now. Let's listen to how Beth Bacon, a mother of young kids, describes crossing the street there. Well, I choose my crossing carefully. Um, 
and I take my kids, uh, ask them to stand on the corner while I step out and look and see if there are cars coming or if the cars will stop. And then if there's, if I feel like it's a safe crossing, I take them, but often I hold their hands and I tell them to go quickly, and it's a heart stopper every time. So what has the city done about it? Until recently, very little, except studying it for three years now. DDOT's been studying changing the layout of several intersections in the Maryland Ave Corridor and recently installed improved signage at crosswalks. But not until our story aired did DDOT update its blog promising to finally move forward on more substantial safety improvements. Is it safe to say that there are problems in the neighborhood that can be found elsewhere? A group of D.C. residents and safety advocates are actually forming a new pedestrian rights group called All Walks D.C. to try to focus the district's attention more keenly on this issue. And I have no doubt you'll be keeping close tabs on their work. Thanks so much for joining us, Martin, and be sure to walk safely out there. Anytime, Jonathan. In a minute, a mysterious mural. We don't really know who the artist was what the rest of the thing looked like. There's a lot of unanswered questions. That and more is coming up here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson in for Rebecca Shear. This week, our theme is Turning Points. And one of the issues many scientists are studying is whether we've reached a turning point with storms, specifically big, bad, violent storms that sweep through cities and towns and trash pretty much everything in sight. So far in 2014, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, has issued 29 disaster declarations across the country. There were tornadoes in Nebraska, snowstorms in Vermont, and mudslides in Washington state, and the blows from Mother Nature don't seem to be easing up. So if that's the case, what changes will we have to make to our built environment to weather that gathering storm? That's the topic of a new exhibit at the National Building Museum here in D.C. Designing for Disaster explores the ways people can mitigate the damage from future natural catastrophes by building with resiliency in mind. Lauren Ober has the story. Okay, so imagine your car's suspension system. It's basically a shock absorber mounted inside a big metal coil and attached to the wheel to give you a smooth ride. If you didn't have shocks, a short drive would rattle the fillings right out of your mouth. Now imagine a shock absorber that's 10 times the size of the one in your car. But it's not for a vehicle. It's for a stadium. Specifically, the recently renovated California Memorial Stadium in Berkeley, which inconveniently lies on a seismic fault line. This type of damper is actually connecting the concrete core that's supporting the press box at the stadium to the seating bowl. But those two things are actually not connected, again, so that they can move independently. In essence, the stadium's press box sort of hovers over the seating area, but isn't actually attached to it. That segmented design is critical to withstanding damage from future earthquakes, says Chrysanthi Broikis, a curator at the National Building Museum. I'm the curator of Designing for Disaster, a show that looks at how we can prevent Uh, reduce the impact of and prepare better for natural disasters. Scientists say the number of devastating weather events, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, is on the rise. 
and those events seem to be growing ever more intense. Think of this. In 1953, there were 13 federal disaster declarations issued. A half a century later, and that number had quadrupled. Last year, FEMA issued more than one major disaster declaration a week. The Building Museum's exhibit examines what can be done about this from a design perspective. Ever since, quite frankly, the 1990s, where there were a number of disasters, the thinking has begun to shift and that we really need to start working with nature and understanding nature better instead of always trying to fight her. So most of the examples within the exhibition, in one way or another, are a reflection of that. The show begins in a room filled with artifacts from previous disasters. Chunks of the National Cathedral that fell off during the 2011 earthquake, a slice of boardwalk shredded by Superstorm Sandy, and a spray-painted door from New Orleans that was kicked down after Hurricane Katrina. The artifacts are reminders of nature's blind fury. But don't think the exhibit is all doom and gloom. In addition to showing what we humans are up against, Broikus wanted to show the changes being made in advance of future disasters. In the Earth Gallery, visitors can see that giant shock absorber from the Berkeley Stadium. In the Water Gallery, there are oyster shell barriers, basically big blocks made from the bivalves' homes, meant to prevent flood surges and help rebuild marine ecosystems. Moving into the Wind Gallery, the exhibit gets interactive with a model of the Wall of Wind, a hurricane simulator at Florida International University. They actually worked with the Miami Science Museum to create an interactive that shows exactly what that wall of wind can do. And we, we've got one here. <laughs> Broikis explains the model as she sets up two little houses in front of a series of tiny fans. One house has a flat roof, while the other has a hipped roof, or a roof where all the sides slope downward to the walls. So what this does is let you see that even something as simple as the shape of your roof can actually have a big impact on the structural integrity of your home. So I'm going to push three and see what happens here. We've got a hipped roof and a flat roof. just flew off, the hip roof performed much better. Um, And it turns out that a shape like that, which actually equalizes the pressure, does a better job. Also in the wind gallery is a structure that Midwesterners know all too well. So I'm standing in a safe room right now, which is in the National Building Museum as a part of the exhibit. This safe room basically feels like a fallout shelter, which is essentially what it is, only it's it's meant to provide shelter and safety from extreme winds. It's made from concrete blocks, cinder blocks, steel rebar, and mortar. Now in this particular safe room, they also have a collection of food, like cashews and cocktail peanuts, triscuits, some saltines, and a bunch of other things that won't go bad. There's also a first aid kit, a solar cell phone charger, and a little radio so that you can stay in touch with the outside world from the safety of your ready-made safe box. But Broikus emphasizes you don't need to reinforce your house with giant X braces or build a bomb-proof safe room in your cellar in order to be prepared for natural disasters. There's just this incredible human capacity for inaction. And the fact is, if you do just little things, you it can make a big difference. So 
that's one of the underlying goals of the exhibition is to show you can do something. And even if that something is just packing an emergency go bag and keeping it in the closet in the event of an evacuation, it's better than nothing. I'm Lauren Ober. Want to see a video of the Wall of Wind model in action? Go to our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story is about one D.C. building in particular and a forgotten work of art it's been hiding for many, many years. In the 1860s, 415 M Street Northwest was built as the private home of a neighborhood butcher. But over the past 140-plus years, it's been the site of the Young Men Hebrew Association, an Orthodox synagogue, a church, and then one of the city's first ministries serving the local LGBT community. The building is now a shell, waiting for a developer to convert the space into condominiums later this summer. But as Emily Berman tells us, within the home's brick walls is a unique and irreplaceable part of D.C.'s Jewish history. When we say this artifact is within the home's brick walls, that's precisely what we mean. It's a mural. A historically significant mural, in fact, and to preserve it, a whole hunk of plaster needs to be saved. One of the people trying to do that rescue work is Zach Levine, the curator of the Historical Society of Greater Washington. I meet him outside, 415 M Street. So yeah, watch yourself. They tell me that none of the wires are live. (laughs) Okay, good. We don't have a lot of information about who painted the mural. Levine says it was probably commissioned in the 1920s by an Orthodox synagogue named Shomrei Shabbos, which held services here. We do know that it was common in Lithuania and Poland to paint their wooden synagogues, but most of the murals and the synagogues themselves were destroyed in the Holocaust. A similar preservation effort is underway in Burlington, Vermont, where a mural was found on the ceiling of a carpet store. This is the only example that's been uncovered in Washington, D.C., and all we know about the mural, and the house, for that matter, is what we see. The ceiling, it it almost looks like somebody cut away a big square in the ceiling. They applied to the city to cut this away so they could create a gallery for uh, women, um, because in this Orthodox synagogue, men and women sit separately. We climb up to the second floor, where the mural is. It was hidden behind wallpaper and paint until about 20 years ago. That's when D.C.-based filmmaker Stephanie Sluka moved in and started renovating. And um, I'd hired these two guys from the neighborhood to start scraping away, and part of it was there. She kept scraping away at the plaster and revealed the mural. Well, parts of it. The Star of David was almost all there, and the blue sky was there with some little gold stars in it. In a semicircle, there's a quotation from the Book of Exodus. It's, wherever I allow my name to be mentioned, I will come to you and bless you. Some of the mural was intact, but the middle had crumbled away. Sluga contacted the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Washington, which tracked down someone who had gone to services at Shomrei Shabbos back in the 20s and would have seen this mural in person. And he really couldn't quite remember. So she got creative. She went to the library and researched what might have been in the center of the mural and then hired an artist to fill in the missing pieces. He painted a winged lion, a nod to a phrase in Jewish teachings that devotion to God should be brave like a lion and light like an eagle. 
she asked for the Historical Society's blessing. I said, you know, is it in any way offensive or sacrilegious to, you know, have this in my living room? Should we cover it back up? What, you know, what do you think? We told her that very clearly that Judaism is a religion of time and not a religion of place. Um, Once Jews leave a place, it's no longer really a Jewish place. The fact that it's the only example of Jewish mural painting in Washington, D.C., makes it an important historical object, Levine says, but not a sacred one. This mural was really hers to do whatever she wanted. The mural was in the middle of Sluka's living room, which has made a great conversation piece over the years. And she says she's proud of the way it was preserved. You know, it got a new life, you know, it, and, and the, the history of, you know, Shomari Sabbath you know, was told for another 20 years. Sluka recently sold the property, and by the end of the summer, construction will begin on condos. It will take $20,000 to preserve the most original parts of the mural and put them on display in the Historical Society's new museum, set to open in a few years. With just a month left, there's about half the money yet to raise. But Levine says he's confident the story of this mural and the Jewish community that created it will be told for years to come. I'm Emily Berman. We have photos of the mural on our website, metroconnection.org. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Brookville, Maryland, and the Columbia Forest area of Arlington, Virginia. My name is Sherry Lewis. I'm 51 years old, and I live in Columbia Forest in Arlington, Virginia. Columbia Forest is located near the intersection of Fairfax, Alexandria, and Arlington counties. We border one side on Fairfax County and we are about 50 yards away from Alexandria on the other. Well, Columbia Forest started as a planned community and it was built in 1941. The Army Corps of Engineers designed the houses and supervised their construction. And the street layout was designed to conform to the topography. And so it has lots of curved streets, cul-de-sacs and park areas. And they made an effort to save the existing trees, so it gave the impression of a much more permanent, mature community. And we have a beautiful canopy of trees as a result. Uh, Columbia Forest, like a lot of area around Arlington, was once owned by George Washington. So we have a lot of fun telling friends and relatives that visit that they're on land George Washington once owned. We are going to be getting the trolley coming up Columbia Pike. So we're happy about that. We've got a brand new community center. And my son goes to the elementary school. It's a countywide elementary school, and it's a dual immersion Spanish-English program. And a lot of the neighborhood kids go to that, as well as kids from all over the county. We have grocery stores within walking distance. We have the high school pool within walking distance. We have parks within walking distance. We have bicycle trails. We have all this stuff. I'm Karen Montgomery, and I live in the town of Brookville in one of the older houses. The town is up what we now call Georgia Avenue, Route 97, exactly two miles from the crossroads of 108 in Olney. 
This town has a hot 48 or 49 houses and families in every single house, varying from single women who have been widowed up into thriving families with three young children. Quakers in Brookville help make the history of the town. Brookville would not have had a post office. Brookville would not have had the schools it had if it had not been a Quaker town. It was a town that educated all of its slaves and ex-slaves because the town believed in educating everyone, white or black. So the town has always attracted somewhat eccentric people who are interested in education. I see the town becoming a spot where oldness is respected, but not revered for its own sake, that the houses need to be preserved, but the intellectual stimulation needs to continue on and move forward. We heard from Karen Montgomery in Brookville and Sherry Lewis in Columbia Forest. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org. You can also send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And you can find a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Lauren Ober, Kavitha Cardoza, Martin DeCaro, and Emily Berman, along with reporters Megan Pauley and John Hines. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We have information on all of the music we use on MetroConnection.org. Just click a story for information on its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection or by subscribing to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you our annual show dedicated to global D.C. We'll launch ourselves into the frenzied spectator sport that is World Cup viewing in Washington. We'll talk with a CIA agent who's juggling his day job with novel writing. And we'll meet the members of D.C.'s Cosita Seria Music Collective. You know, some of our, our members don't speak Spanish or English. Uh, so it's like, you know, our language is the music. I'm Jonathan Wilson, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.